The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get the latest uh, on this Trump indictment, the arraignment yesterday in Lower Manhattan. We're going to roundtable this thing today. Uh, Lisa Camuso. Miller, former Republican National Committee Communications Director and partner with Reset Public Affairs, joins us by phone, as does Bloomberg Washington correspondent Emily Wilkins uh, to discuss the the indictment. Lisa, let's start with you here. Um, What's the feeling in Republican circles about what took place in lower Manhattan yesterday? Oh, well, it's really hard to tell. I mean, this is so unprecedented and just so different from anything we've ever seen in the history of this country. I think, you know, there is a different point of view from a lot of different parts of the party. But ultimately, the thought is that wherever happened yesterday in front of the world um, did nothing to bolster any support for Donald Trump from the Republicans that he lost in 2016. So he has a very core base of about 30% of the electorate on the Republican side that are still with him, regardless of how insane all of this really is. Um, But there is just so much more to look at and unpack as this unfolds. But really yesterday, I mean, the fact that he wants to run for office in 24, but can go to Mar-a-Lago and and yell from the microphone about how um, the fabric of the country is is eroded and this is all fake and false, is just to me, it's just in totally in contrast to what the party at once at one time stood for. But it seems like everybody in the party has gotten behind him, at least to call this um, uh, this indictment a political move. Right. I mean, we heard from Mitt Romney, who is no traditional fan of uh, of Donald Trump. He voted twice to impeach the former president, that this is overreach by Alvin Bragg and that this will damage the U.S. judicial system. I guess, you know, from from the Democrats point of view, Mitt Romney is as close to a voice of reason as the Republican Party has. And he's calling out Bragg saying this is not right. Yeah, that's a real change in tone from him. And that was really surprising. But I suspect that part of it, too, is not necessarily political. But I think maybe what Romney is thinking behind the scenes is that it does. it's not necessarily about what Bragg has done, because I cannot believe that someone like um, like D.A. Bragg would do anything but bring the strongest possible case in an instance like this. The difference here, though, is Hang that on, I'm you're sure a Republican? that Romney... <laughs> At one point I was. Now I'm a little bit confused. I got it's it. A little okay. I was, I was confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a never Trumper and there's no surprise about that. But I am still part of the Republican Party and I represent the side that's also more just confused by all of this. We're right. confused by this. But but this trend is not we're not going backwards here. That's the difference is that we're not going back to where we once were. We have to go through this. So we have to figure out as a party, as a country, how it is we're going to manage and um, because Trump is not going away. So it's more of a how how do we figure out what it is that he's done to unlock this core of voters in the Republican side. So back to my point about Trump, though, or excuse me, about Romney. Romney, to me, if he is trying to unlock and talk about this in a way that he calls this political, he is most likely thinking that not only is the damage going to come from Trump and the damage is going to be um, done in a way that will cause harm to the judicial system. It'll also cause a problem for, for any future case that will come because everything Trump is trying to do is discredit, right? Um, these, these, uh, all of these right. allegations about payments have been confusing to people. No one really fundamentally understands why it matters. The truth is, is that he, but did everyone it all. sort of agrees that it happened, right? In terms of the oh, actual yeah. payments. Let me bring in Emily no, Wilkins no, no. from Bloomberg government. Emily, the, uh, senior statesman from Utah. And I mean, Mitt Romney, um, is the, one of the more statesman like people in the entire, you know, uh, Senate, I think everyone would agree. He said, quote, the prosecutor's overreach sets a dangerous precedent 
for criminalizing political opponents and damages the public's faith in our justice system. Are there any statesmen, um, you know, are there, are there any like legit respectable senators, Emily, who have come out on the other side of this? I mean, for Democrats, absolutely. You certainly see them, you know, say that, that, that you know, encouraging uh, what uh, D.A. Bragg has done here, uh, kind of going after Trump, saying like, look, you know, if a potential crime was being committed, they have the right to look into it. At the same point, I do think there is a sense in D.C. and on Capitol Hill that this is not the strongest case against Trump. I mean, remember, there are multiple cases that are looking into the former president, right? There's the one in Georgia that deals with the 2020 election and interference. There's the one in D.C. right now with the special uh, special counsel that's looking into the classified documents. And there's a sense that some of those are actually bigger concerns than any sort of mismanagement in bookkeeping or, or hush money payments. And so I think there's kind of an I will be interested to see how Mitt Romney responds when some of those those cases are brought forward. Because if you look at the Republican Party right now on Capitol Hill, they are really done with the 2020 election. They're done with calls that it's fraudulent. They want to get past that and move past that. If you see another one of these indictments, they're going to have to confront it again. And I think for a number of them, you aren't going to see maybe as much support uh, for Trump or as much blowback against, uh, you know, whoever the DA is who brings the case forward. I mean, this particular instance, it's really easy for Republicans. You know, when you ask them about Trump, when you ask them about the indictment, they will immediately change the channel uh, to District, District Attorney Alvin Bragg. You saw Kevin McCarthy yesterday, you know, really did not comment about Trump much at all, but went after Alvin Bragg saying he's attempting to interfere with our democratic process, that Congress will hold him accountable. This is really a talking point that everyone's so far been able to Get behind. Lisa, you're the former communications director for the Republican National Committee. Has where has the Republican Party go gone in your in your opinion? I mean, is it gone to the Trump's party, Trump wing, and is that permanent? I mean, where where did your Republican Party go? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Uh, you know, the funny thing about all of this, and it's really not very funny, that the the one thing that now um, Republicans behind the scenes are trying to, to figure out is how how do they access, how do they unlock the lockbox that Trump has figured out how to hold on to in that 30%, that sort of core um, voter pool that are, is with him. The difficulty, though, and, and Emily's point is absolutely right, Capitol Hill is not, they are not wanting to talk anymore about 2020. The, the leadership, there's a vacuum, right? And the only thing that continues to, to draw attention and continues to hold on to those voters that are uh, really hard, the hardest to get to is Trump. So I think that more than ever before, Republicans are frightened to step up and stand up to him. And so they're happier to talk about Alvin Bragg. And talk, I mean, he's become, a, he's become a household name over the course of the last couple of months and years. The party itself, though, is going to have to figure out how to carve their own message out and talk to the electorate, that portion of yep. the electorate that stepped away from Trump in 16, or excuse me, that were with Trump in 16, but stepped away right. from him in 2020. Those are the voters. Those are like middle class voters yep. that are, uh, they're desperate for support. Right. They're desperate for help. They want to access the yep. economy in a way that's different. So, All right, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Lisa Camuso Miller, partner of Reset Public Affairs, and Emily Wilkins uh, from uh, Bloomberg uh, News joining us, uh, talking to us about uh, this Trump indictment. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV viewers and radio listeners. The New York International Auto Show begins on Friday. Uh, to help us prepare for it, Jeremy Pappin, Nissan America's chairperson, and Bloomberg's Matt Miller join us now. Matt, why don't you kick things off? 
All right, thanks. You know, I would love to start with the IRA, Jeremy, and this is the Inflation Reduction Act that we all struggled for so many months to understand. It's key because if you get it right, consumers automatically get a $7,500 tax credit um, for buying your electric vehicles. But if you get it wrong, they get bupkis and you need to lower prices or give incentives. So what have you got that I can get $7,500 off uh, from Uncle Sam on, and what are you planning on putting out that's going to be uh, IRA compliant? Good, uh, good morning. Well, today you've got a Nissan Leaf that fully qualifies for the $7,500 uh, tax incentive, and, um, and uh, you've got a Nissan Aria that fully qualifies for the uh, commercial Leafs under the 45W provision of the, of the IRA. So we've got two great offerings in, uh, in market today. And uh, we think the IRA is a tremendous opportunity. The rules are clear now. Uh, the framework is established for uh, several years. And, uh, and the company is developing plans to be fully compliant with IRA. Uh, we will be uh, producing uh, a number of EVs from our Canton plant in Mississippi uh, by the end of 2025, and, and, those, and those vehicles would be fully compliant uh, 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 with IRA. So I think we, we welcome the IRA, the clarity, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and what it means in terms of developing the EV demand and business in the, in the USA. In terms of EVs, I mean, you did have the lead at one point. A lot of people forget that Nissan was a pioneer, right, with the Leaf, and you still uh, got that coming out. What are the higher end vehicles that you can produce here? You know, I've driven the QX60 from Infinity. I've driven the QX80, fantastic vehicles, but they don't have the uh, battery powered um, uh, sort of forward thinking power plant that, that customers are gonna need in 10 years. Yeah, look, today again, it's, uh, it's Leaf that you mentioned is Aria. Aria is packed with technology. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an EV, so you get all the driving pleasure out of it. We've enhanced uh, the, the uh, e-force, which is motion control, which provides you a sense of safety that uh, you know, is unprecedented. Uh, the, the connected services uh, in the car is amazing. We've added a ProPilot 2.0, which is uh, some uh, uh, you know, uh, safety uh, feature and uh, autonomous driving capability. So there's a lot of technology in an area today, and that's, that starts at $43,000. So that's very competitive in the marketplace as well. Um, and, uh, and the future, uh, you know, Nissan's going to be um, launching about 27 uh, new cars in the, in the next seven years, 19 of which will be full battery electric vehicles, and most of which will come to the U.S. We'll have an EV in every market that is significant to yep. the U.S. consumer. Jeremy, if I have range anxiety and I want to stick with a traditional combustion engine, what can you offer me? Are we moving away from that too quickly? I think, uh, you know, today the, the Aria is a 300 miles EV already and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very good range for the, for the, for the uh, daily use and the most commonly used routes in the U.S. I understand the question uh, and the, the charging experience. That's why the charging experience is so important and that's why uh, the efforts that are being put in place by private and public, uh, you know, uh, funding to deploy charging infrastructure is so important because that's going to be critical uh, to the to the to the EV experience of the of the customer. So uh, I, I think it's it's a matter of uh, of, of the charging uh, the charging network development. We at Nissan already have a very uh, well established charging network through our dealer network. And uh, and thinking about technology of the future, the company is investing into all solid state battery, which will uh, you know double the power density, lower the charging time, definitely increase further the range, and so that's the future breakthrough in technology. The confidence in terms of the technology we're bringing and the breakthroughs means you know in 2030 we think our yep. sales of EVs will largely exceed 40 percent of our of our sales. So uh, there, there will be an answer for for all. Okay, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I know you can't switch gears in an electric vehicle, but nevertheless, <laughs> we'll do it. Um, let's talk a little bit about where we are with the dealer network. Jeremy, a year ago, if I'd gone to the dealer network, the biggest concern would have been the availability of inventory. 
the availability of new cars to buy. I wonder whether now the biggest concern that the dealer network has is the significant rise in rates, interest rates that we've seen over the last year. The Fed, the ECB, everybody is raising rates right now. And I'm wondering what impact you see that having. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think you're right that uh, availability was an issue. It's less of an issue today, but still dealer inventories are very tight at Nissan. So uh, the market is clearly pulling. And uh, today, the, what we see in terms of the, the market demand is that it's, it's exceeding the, 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 the production that, that we have. And where we're seeing a change in terms of the, of the uh, interest rates having is... is People are shopping for entry segments. Uh, they are showing interest in, in, uh, in entry segments that perhaps was less there uh, a year ago. For Nissan, it's good news because we've got a, a Versa, we've got a Sentra, we've got a Kicks. All of those are very strong uh, value for money offerings in entry segments. We have a very well-established presence, great products. So uh, the, the, the customer shopping, uh, shopping a Nissan that is shopping for a price point given where interest rates are, has an answer in our product lineup today. You know, this, the product lineup today, um, a lot of it is impressive to me. I love the Z. That's one that you can't make enough of, I'm sure. But um, Americans in general like bigger uh, things, like the QX80, like the Armada, like the Titan. And that's scheduled um, for ending production. What are you going to do about the big truck, big SUV segment beyond, say, 2025? The, the, the Titan, uh, the Armada, the QX80 that you mentioned, they're all very good business for us today. The, the large SUVs are, are clearly an area where we are uh, uh, meeting customer demand and, and determined to uh, remain very relevant in the, in the marketplace. So these are, these are, good, uh, these are good, uh, good segments for us in, uh, in the works. Um, again, you can find you can find all of those vehicles as a now. Year but what about in 2026? I mean, aren't you going to end production of the Titan then? Uh, the, the 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 Titan again is uh, is 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 fully available today. We're working on uh, remaining very relevant in the marketplace. Working on uh, solutions around the trucks that are uh, towards electrification as well. So. Um, the Titan, as we know, is uh, you know is uh, is is meeting the customer, and 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 we're working on what can come next. Guys, we'll wrap it up there. Really looking forward to the show, Jeremy. Uh, I'm sure Matt will be popping down uh, to take a look at what is on offer. Jeremy Pappin of Nissan, uh, and of course, Bloomberg's one and only Matt Miller. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to focus on Europe right now. Uh, Tomasz Netzel, a senior equity analyst. He covers the European banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Tomas, thanks so much for joining us here uh, frame out for us what you think the risk could be for European banks. Um, you know, we had Silicon Valley Bank here in the U.S., and that kind of spooked people and got people focusing on the health of the banks. What's the concern about European banks and real estate? Hey, hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, well, first of all, yes, as you mentioned, everybody is right now looking at commercial real estate. As this, is, this is the asset which everybody is focusing after SVB and crazy Swiss drama. Everybody is trying to understand what is the impact of high, high elevated interest rates on highly leveraged uh, markets and commercial real estate tick all the boxes, unfortunately. And when we look at the European banks, we identify that there's nearly 1.4 trillion of euros of credit loans on, on the balance sheet at the moment. It is spread across Europe, European markets. UK, France, Germany has the highest volumes in terms of the exposures, the percentage of total loans. Nordic banks actually are screening the worst. They have more than 10% of the total loans versus uh, around 6 to 7 for European banks. And in terms of the risk, of course, there is a risk of refinancing, there is a risk of higher risk, there is a risk of not repaying the debt on time. So which for the banks means we can create some impairment charges, maybe there will be a write-off even ever happening. But it's not going to happen over one quarter. If, if there's an, any stresses in the market, it's going to take several quarters to play. But investors definitely want to understand who is most exposed, whose portfolio is most vulnerable, and how they will um, through this portfolio in the coming uh, quarters.
What do we hear from regulators? What do we hear from the ECB? I mean, the, the concern here, Thomas, as you know, is that, uh, you know, the Fed dropped the ball or didn't do anything with the ball. So is it going to be a different story in Europe? You know, that's very interesting because ECB has been looking into credit market already for a couple of years. I think in 2018, they started to collect data from the banks on their exposure to the to the market. Sadly, this data is not available for public. Maybe it will be right now. And ECB has flagged already commercial real estate market as one of the vulnerabilities even before SVB and credit with drama. Right? So definitely it is on the radar for uh, for the regulators, they may be looking to introducing some macroprudential measures to ease the pressure for the banks, to ease the pressure to uh, to to stop the financing, maybe or make financing a little bit more safe. So definitely, ECB is uh, it has will have to look into this more more carefully. And it's all about what's going to happen in the interest rates in coming months, right? Whether they're going to be raising or not, and what what is the policy over there? And Tomas, I mean. Unlike here in the U.S., where we have a lot of regional banks that, you know, maybe not may not be able to take the the risk here, in Europe, it, the real estate loans are from big big banks. So does that limit the, kind of the risk a little bit, or do they are you still concerned? Yes, as, as you mentioned rightly, right? You know, for the biggest banks, HSBC, BNP, and uh, lots like that, it, it is around six to seven, eight percent. For Nordic's banks, a little bit more. It's more than ten percent, so they are definitely more exposed. But also, we are having uh, we are having four German specialized banks which are just doing commercial real estate financing. Uh, they are quite small. Not all of them are publicly publicly traded. So definitely. There will be kind of the right. canary mind, you know. There will be there, there will be bad Okay, what's happening with the market? These banks, these banks are which are very much specializing only in credit financing. What's happening with those uh, loans in, in in coming quarter in the reporting period? That yep. definitely be uh, providing us useful information. What we can expect with other banks. All right, and what we can also expect is to get some good news or good intelligence, good data. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence is holding an investor event on April 20th, uh, talking about real estate, the Real Estate Summit 2023. Tell us about this uh, conference you guys are having. Is it is it in London? Yes, it's based in London. It okay. is organized by my colleagues from the real estate team. So definitely we're gathering all the specialists in the market. Uh, it is uh, the second time we're organizing the event. So lots of market participants, especially will be there talking about actually what we are discussing at the moment. right? So definitely it's going to be on the agenda. So very much, you know, inviting everyone who is interested in participating to learn more from the market experts, from Bloomberg Intelligence team as well, from analysts, from real estate uh, specialists uh, to to, uh, to to get a better understanding of what's happening with the office prices in UK, you know, in, in, in France, in Germany, across all the capital cities, what are the expectations and uh, how how this situation can play out. All right, really interesting. So that's so all our friends in uh london they can uh, check that out go to bloomberg.com they'll have some uh go to the conferences section there you'll see some opportunities there to sign up for that that's in conjunction with the european public real estate association so bloomberg intelligence uh april 20th uh in new york uh bloomberg intelligence and epra it's the real estate finance summit 2023 so if you're in london check that out get the latest on the real estate business and perhaps you know the impact or the risk it uh, it means for some of the European banks and clearly that is a, a global issue. Uh, U.S. banks are being questioned and it's going to be a real focus for when the banks report earnings in the next couple of weeks. Is a lot of folks are going to be spending a lot of time focusing on the real estate exposure and, and maybe how they are reserved against that and what some of the risks will be for real estate. So when the banks report, it'll be about deposits and and some of their loan portfolio. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We've got another guest in studio. It's just like back in the, the days before the pandemic when people would actually come into work, come into the office, come into the studio, and do this stuff live. We're going to talk regional banks here. There's a lot to talk about. Obviously, we had the concern over the last several weeks of some of these smaller regional banks failing. Uh, that's obviously front and center, and that spooked a lot of people about uh, the overall banking uh, industry. Uh, now we've got an additional headwind, which is kind of real estate loans and how that may be an issue for some of the banks. So let's bring in Herman Chaney, covers the regional banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. He doesn't phone it in. He doesn't mail it in. He comes into the office, and we appreciate that. He's in the studio here. Uh, Herman, talk to us about... When you talk to institutional investor clients these days, where are they in kind of the the, the fear factor for the industry? Right. 
Um, have we gotten past that initial panic that we had a few weeks ago and a little bit more rational out there maybe? Yeah, I think the panic has receded for the industry. You're right. Uh, but uh, there are certain banks that are still in the crosshairs of the market. Uh, we can point to Western Alliance today. Uh, but in terms of the industry itself, at least from the Fed data that we look at, it does seem like the emergency borrowings from, from banks, uh, from the discount window and also the new bank term funding program, those have declined, which I think is a positive sign that banks can manage their liquidity issues without needing to tap these emergency measures. All right, you mentioned Western Alliance. The stock's down 15% today. What's the story there? Yeah, so Western Alliance came out with an update uh, yesterday after the market closed and offered a bunch of interesting metrics uh, in terms of the uninsured deposits. 68% uh, of their deposits are now insured versus 55% a couple weeks back. So that's a positive sign. They also mentioned that uh, they didn't tap the discount window at quarter end. So that seems like a positive sign. But interestingly enough, they didn't give any disclosures on the uh, amount of deposits on their balance sheet at quarter end. So the the market's a bit spooked in terms of why they didn't disclose these numbers when they were pretty uh, open about disclosing other numbers. Uh, so that's, that's- Is this a number that gets disclosed are. by these companies in their quarterly filings typically? Right, so they would disclose this when they report their okay. earnings, which is in a couple of weeks, but they, they pre-reported a bunch of other metrics, but not probably the most important metric that, that investors are focused on now. So that's well, that's what's spooking the market. Investors are looking for a lot of data from the Fed, right? Mm -hmm. What do we see in terms of borrowing at the discount window and in this new facility? Yeah, so the discount window uh, peaked uh, two weeks ago. Uh, the, the disclosure went when the direct aftermath of SVB. Um, those discount window borrowings have declined uh, sequentially each week sub, uh, thereafter and the uh, the new bank term lending program is a bit more generous in the way uh, the, the borrowings work with the fed so you're, you're seeing those numbers go up but the overall if you combine those two the overall borrowings from the fed are coming down which is a good sign what are we seeing then in terms of lending mm -hmm. from these banks you know even if um rates come down, or, or frankly, whether they go up, it doesn't matter if banks aren't giving out loans, right? Right. Um, we can make the inference that if banks are seeing deposits go out um, the door, that there's probably less interest for banks to really ratchet up their their appetite to lend. I think that's really the, the issue for the overall economy, that banks could probably have less willingness to 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 increase their their lending because there there's not a lot of funding available to them at advantageous prices so you're seeing funding costs rise so that that inherently means that loan uh rates and borrowing rates will have to increase as well and that could affect both the demand for loans and the supply of loans so let's switch gears a little bit on the regional banks. Another potential headwind for the banks uh, is real estate. Uh, we were just talking to Tomas Netzel, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's summarizing the risk for the European banks. How about for the regional banks here in the United States? Is there a concern? If so, what is the concern kind of circle around real estate? Right. So commercial real estate is something that's become more and more of an issue. It was starting to percolate during the pandemic period when um, folks weren't going into the office and there was not a lot of travel, so hotel loans were another issue. It seems like now the focus is more on office than anything else because you're seeing these loans uh, reach their maturity this year, next year, and the year after. And the cash flows of these office loans have really been challenged by uh, less occupancy, less folks coming into the office. So, so uh, the, the the real estate has and, and square footage has really come down. The needs for those real estate square footage has come down. So all that means that there's less cash flow and more and higher vacancies. Meaning there's it's going to be a challenge for the folks that own these properties to. Uh, refinance given that rates are higher and your cash flows are lower so that something has to give they either have to inject more equity into 
these uh, these loans, or or uh, they may have to give the key back to the borrower. So those are things we're we're focused on and tracking. But it's going to be a longer term story that'll play out over the next few years. So Herman, uh, let's say a big client calls you up at the end of quarter. He says, "Listen, I got to put a, a lot of money here into action. Which regional banks do I buy? You know, pick pick your top three. What do you what do I want right now?" Sure, you want a bank that has demonstrated the ability to manage interest rate risk. And no, I mean, I, I want the names of the banks. <laughs> I'll give them to you now. So uh, you look at the banks that have the track record. You can look at banks like PNC, MNT, US Bank uh, that have strong management teams, uh, have managed risk pretty deftly o- over multiple periods and they've been around the block and they, they understand credit risk, they understand interest rate risk. So those are the ones that have been affected by this downturn in banks. Then so prices seem fairly reasonable. I'll just repeat it slowly for those uh, driving along. Get out your pencil. Pnc U.S. Bank, M&T, and M&T, and U.S. Bank. Now, full Herman disclosure, likes. Herman used to work at M&T in investor relations, isn't that's that right? That's right. That's right. right. I did so do you own the shares? I do own some residual shares from some... Uh, <laughs> oh, thank God we got that out there. <laughs> yes, exactly. What if, what, what if so, somebody, you had, so you moved to Buffalo? I did. I, live, I, I moved from New York City to Buffalo for the role. Have you ever jumped wow. on a table? I, I and broken it. <laughs> Why Bills, we Bills that? Mafia? That's what the Buffalo deal, Bills yeah. do, dude. Oh, okay. Do you not right. see that? No. It's a, yeah. It's a uh, it's something that Bills Mafia fans do. So, but uh, I haven't. Uh, Unfortunately, haven't had the opportunity to do that, but would love to go back and, and see a Bills game and, and partake in all those festivities. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they are diehard fans up there, and uh, that's interesting. That's a good bank, quality bank. I usually use that as one of my kind of benchmarks for regional banks, and, and then PNC, uh, Pittsburgh National Corporation, or used to be PNB, Pittsburgh National Bank, I think. So some good stuff there, U.S. Bank as well. All right, regional banks, uh, some issues, but they seem to have weathered at least the initial wave of concern that we saw several weeks ago, and now people are going to be focusing on the banks when they report their quarterly earnings uh, coming up. Uh, Herman Chan, thank you so much for joining us yet again as we wind our way through this regional bank story. Herman Chan, he covers the regional banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio as he is wont to do. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get right to our next guest, Dan Ives, Managing Director Senior Equity Analyst, he covers all the tech stuff for Wedbush Securities. Dan, thanks so much for uh, joining us again. We appreciate getting some of your time here. I want to start with, there's a million ways we can go here, but I want to start with Tesla. It seemed like they had a good delivery number. I know that was a number that people were looking at, but the stock market's not buying it over the past couple of days. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, look, this was obviously a lot of hype that we've seen in terms of what the stock's done this year post the price cuts. I view it as a strong number. I just think some of the bulls were hoping for more in terms of a bigger beat. And now this is sort of the drum roll into earnings, April 19th, to see what margins are doing. I think they're able to hold the line. I think this knee jerk is just sort of a, you know, sort of selling the news. We're buyers here in weakness. Yeah, it should be noted that the number was better than the street's estimate. So they beat. Not only did they post record deliveries in the quarter, but they beat what the average estimate of analysts um, had suggested they would post. Are analysts just, um, you know, sandbagging them here? What's what's the story? Look, I think it's always hard to peg the number because of the price cuts. Because obviously, since the price cuts that they did earlier this quarter, that's been a huge catalyst, specifically in China. So that number's moved around a lot. And Look, I think the big thing here is they are on a trajectory for $1.8 million for the year in terms of units. And you look in the neighborhood of autos, 
it's still Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. And I think that's what continues to stick out here despite this sell-off. Are the prices, you know, I mean, the prices were too high, obviously. That's why they cut them. But now that rates continue to climb, is it just unaffordable for too many people to cover that monthly nut? Yeah, and Matt, I think here it's really they're trying to find the level where they could cut prices, stimulate demand, but also maintain margins. It's a tightrope. Especially in China, there's essentially, I'll call a mini to moderate price war breaking out at a time where the macro is still cloudy. And I think that's, even though we're still in the second inning of the EV arms race, GM, others, and Ford, you know, for Tesla right now, this is, it's a critical three to six months to put an iron fence around their install base. So, Dan, with the price cuts, what does that do to the Tesla margin story, the profitability story? Well, they are uniquely positioned because of their scale globally, that they're able to cut prices and still have margins you know, significantly above the industry. And I think that's going to be the narrative when they report earnings in a few weeks. But the big question is, will they have to cut more to, to stimulate you know, demand? I think, look, it's near-term pain for long-term gain. Because if they don't and just sit there and keep prices where they were, especially going back a few months ago, that would have been the wrong move. I think it's the right strategic poker move. The stocks obviously had a you know a huge run from the bottom, and now it's really what I'd use for the next step in the growth story with China front and center as this EV arms race plays out globally, both in China as well as in the U.S. in the three one three area code with GM and Ford aggressively going after EVs. So again, how do you think? Has your view of EV demand changed at all, Dan? I know there's some. Uh, concerns out there. When you see price cuts, it kind of calls into question what the ultimate demand is out there. Well, I think when you take a step back in the U.S., less than 3% of automobiles are EVs. We believe that goes to 10% in the next three years. So mm -hmm. the demand story is going to be there. I think the issue really comes down to prices. Now, the tax credit has come through, which is a positive. But that's really going to be the question in terms of competition and I don't view it as a zero-sum game. I view this as just a massive, what I'll call green tidal wave, that's going to benefit not just Tesla, the likes of GM, Ford, short plays like Lucid and others. And in China, I think NEO is probably the one, along with BYD, that sticks out as the domestic place. Dan, if, if EV demand is that strong, if sales are as uh, robust as you expect them to be, how on earth are we going to power all of those vehicles? I mean, we can already not power the small amount of EVs that sit in California today. What will we do if um, the inventory doubles or triples? You just nailed it because that's the big issue in the Beltway because it's the carrot and the stick. You want to move to green. You want to move to EVs. You need the utilities. You need charging stations to just to give numbers, we have 110,000 charging stations in the United States. We need 500,000 to get the 20% EV penetration. There's going to need to be a lot of government funding around this from a grid perspective and charging stations to ultimately build this out, especially when you have the biggest U.S. automakers going fully EV, GM, over the next decade. Why do you think we don't see EV charging stations at every gas station? I mean, why don't the big... Uh, Royal Dutch Shell or BP or, you know, Sunoco 76. Why don't they get on board? They've had years and years to do it. So it can't be a time issue. Are they fighting against it? Well, look, I think part of it is just the economic decision in terms of especially real estate for every gas station, you know, that, that are obviously owned by individuals. You know, do they want to give that up? Does it make sense mathematically given what it looks like today in terms of EV as a penetration story. You, you clearly see more of that in China, more of that in Europe, and a lot of it is tax incentives. I mean, that's really the big issue. You're fighting the tide here, but so far it's sort of a, a game of, you know, what I'll call high-stakes poker that they're playing, and so far for them it's been the right decision because it's Tesla and the supercharger network that is essentially built out within the U.S. EV demand. Right. All right, Dan, let's switch gears because we can always switch gears with you and you pivot fine. Apple. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week is out with a great story, Dan. Uh, Mark Gurman is out saying Apple looks beyond China in bid to remake Cook's supply chains. 
in reality, can Apple diversify away from China in terms of its supply chain? And if so, how long will that take? Well, German, you know, there's Apple as well as anyone out there. Look, realistically, and it's part of why Cook was in China last week. I mean, that is the hearts and lungs of Apple. And they could talk the game, but if they aggressively went after it in the next two years, max, they can move 5 to 7% of production out of China. Now, of course, India, Vietnam, and some other areas, but, you know, that is right now the tightrope for Apple because that is one of the key ingredients in their success in this geopolitical, essentially cold tech war that's playing out. But Cupertino, 10% politician, you know, in, in terms of what Cook's been able to do, and that's how they've been able to navigate this. So thinking about it here, I mean, if I'm an Apple, I'm a, you know, if I'm Apple, I'm happy. I got a great story, great tailwind. But boy, my China risk is almost as large as it's ever been, really. And it's not going away, is it? It's not going away. And, but look, if they, if they decide to, to build production in New Jersey, those are going to be awesome 3,500-hour iPhones. And that's the problem is that to keep prices where they are, to keep production, to look at this balance, China is the hard one. It is a geopolitical risk, and it's also why they have to navigate that. But also at peak iPhone, they're the second biggest employer within China. Beijing loves having Apple and Tesla uh-huh. on the trophy case. Dan, what do you like that, you know, Tom Keene talks about this bifurcation, the rich getting richer. It's the big profitable tech companies that um, have done so well in the first quarter, as you know. What are we missing in terms of the smaller companies, those that we haven't heard of, the, you know, up and coming, uh, we would have once called them maybe unicorns or, or, or possibly a little beyond that. But what do you see out there that you like that's not Apple? Yeah, I think it's keen summarized so well. The strong will get stronger, and we've seen that in the first quarter, especially Microsoft, Redmond, from, from a software perspective. I, I think it's really going to be SMIDCAP and cybersecurity and cloud. I mean, those are names like, I look at names like Datadog, Snowflake. You look <laughs> in cybersecurity names like CrowdStrike and others. I think that's where this first quarter, I view this as really the start, putting more gasoline in this tech rally rather than something that I fear. All right, Dan, great stuff. Appreciate it. As always, Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst for Wedbush Securities. We love checking in with Dan, getting the latest on all things tech. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You're here to tell us about FedEx, which, by the way, so Critty's always pushing the FedEx story, and uh-huh. I think it's very important, but a lot of people don't don't want to hear it. Why not? I don't know, because this it's is riveting stuff. Yeah. I'll tell you, this is more riveting than the Trump stuff, I got to say. <laughs> uh, FedEx is enormous. This is tech. You just don't realize the subtle yep. undercurrent of online uh, delivery. Can't imagine. That's, they're the logistic arms for everybody yep. that's not Amazon. Yep. Well, Barry, I'm curious what you think about the FedEx story, because ultimately, FedEx is seen as a spellwether naturally, except... The, the typical trade here is if volumes are going up, if people are spending, FedEx stock goes up. Except it now feels like there's a little bit of a change here because today, I'll give you the news first, is that he, they came out to an investor event at the New York Stock Exchange. They're increasing their dividend by 10%, but they're merging two of their core businesses, their express business and their ground business. One is their kind of internal network. Mm-hmm. One is based purely on independent contractors, basically for the consumer. One's more expensive postage than the other. Uh, now they're combining them really to avoid some of the margin costs, which are mostly coming from labor. And that's why they're trying to kind of mesh the two. It's going to create $4 billion in cost efficiency. The stock is rising off it. It's going to help their dividend appease some of their activist investors as well. But at the core of it, to me, it feels like a macro story because this bellwether that is really not about weather, given the stock has been trading more off margins than volume mm-hmm. or economic activity, is now really trading off of labor. Yes and no. To, to start with, this is a 30-year trend that's been in the making of the shift in retail from, from physical stores to online or, or even just drop shipping and, and various sorts of um, app or third-party sellers you know, Instagram is a giant retailer and, and yeah. FedEx gets to benefit 
because all the influencers who say, I love this lipstick, suddenly <laughs> that lipstick sells out. So that's number one. And then number two, sometimes, you know, management looks at the logistics of what they're doing. And to them, to the end client, I don't care how the hell you ship this package. Send it by air, send it by truck. I don't care. I just want to get it from here to here in the least expensive way. And whether the client is the end consumer or the retailer themselves, hey, whatever you could do to keep our costs down so we can move product from here to there, uh, if you have that as one division or two, who cares? And, and in fact, I suspect you're going to pick up my package in a truck, take it to an airport, and then express it to wherever it goes. Whether that's a single division, multiple divisions, it doesn't matter to the retailer or the consumer. All right, good stuff. And Critty, thank you for bringing the story to us. You've been consistent on this for the last several weeks. And then uh, what we had is a good earnings. The company put out some good earnings and yeah. now they put out some a good cost cutting move, raising the dividend. So it seems like uh, they're getting themselves positioned. A lot of folks are saying, hey, maybe they're cutting costs because they sense a recession coming. So a couple ways to look at this. Critty Gupta covers uh, all that good stuff. Stocks for us, markets correspondent for Bloomberg TV, radio, news. She's pretty much everywhere. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We did get some economic news today. The ISM service, services ISM came in weaker than expected, and we got the weaker manufacturing ISMs earlier in the week. So maybe this economy like a lot of people have been saying for a long time, is in fact weakening and a recession is certainly uh, in play. That could certainly hear those people talking about that a little bit more. But what does that mean for the credit markets? Our next guest has a thought or two on that. Roberta Goss, Senior Managing Director of Pretium Partners, uh, joins us. Roberta, in a credit space, what, what are you seeing here versus maybe some other, you know, maybe 2020 or even, you know, during some more challenging times? What are you seeing in the credit markets these days? Good morning. Um, so we have seen in corporate credit really over the last three years um, ongoing continued volatility, um, which we expect to see uh, continue over the next couple of years. Um, by that, I mean, uh, you know, we are expecting an earnings recession, uh, not one that's consumer led um, and one that is impacting corporate earnings as a result of ongoing supply chain uh, stabilization um, and labor costs that um, are really hard for management teams and companies to uh, address still. Um, as a result, we're seeing margin pressure across, uh, across corporates, um, but it's really a rolling uh, set of uh, of opportunities and uh, volatility that we expect to be prolonged uh, over the next couple of years. So we're seeing, I mean, the fault rates have been so low, even during the pandemic, there's so, so much liquidity pumped into the marketplace. But in your recession scenario, do you think that is going to increase going forward? Or are we going to see some real stress maybe in, in some of these credits? Yes. So uh, last year, we reached sort of very low levels, historic lows in default rates in the 0.5% um, uh, uh, level. Um, our expectation, we've already started to see default rates pick up. The trailing number is in the low 2% range, which is still below the historic average. Um, but our expectation is that uh, in 2023, uh, default rates will, will rise to 3.5%. Um, and then in 2024, they will increase, increase again uh, to the 4.5% level. Um, at those rates, that puts us, um, you know, not at, certainly not at the levels we experienced during the GFC, um, but uh, close to the five-year level that we saw um, during the uh, oil issues, oil and gas issues uh, of 2020 or 2016, leading into uh, sort of some elevated default rate rates in uh, 2020 as a result of COVID. Um, and and uh, does that put us into a credit crunch situation? Because we've heard some Fed speakers say that's a concern. Yes, we do think um, that will, uh, you know, I think a, a month ago, 
we would have said that this would have been um, a fairly short, uh, you know, uh, period of recession. I think the banking volatility we've seen uh, over the last several weeks, although that is stabilized uh, recently, uh, we think will result in tighter credit conditions over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we think that um, our default assumptions are, are um, you know, base case right now. So if I, um, how about if I want to go out, I mean, you know, I want to do a, a, a deal. I need some acquisition capital. I got, I'm go to my private equity mm-hmm. partners. They pony up some equity. I go to my uh, big banker in New York or LA or somewhere and I look for a leverage loan. What kind of terms am I going to have? And, and, and how is that different from maybe a year or two ago? Yeah. So in 2021, um, you know, leverage loans and, and credit capital was freely available. Um, I would say that over the last six months, that's certainly tightened in um, uh, dramatically. Um, and the main sort of underwriting banks, the large money center banks, um, are not as uh, free to um, underwrite large LBOs and uh, at uh, very attractive levels. I'd say today, um, if you're a PE sponsor coming with a with a new LBO, um, leverage levels are going to be dramatically lower uh, than they were in 2021, um, and uh, you know pricing on leverage loans right now. If you just look at the average yield on uh, the leverage loan index, that's at nine and a half percent. So the uh, impact of rising rates, in particular with LIBOR now over five percent. And spreads on loans over four uh, percent financing for LBOs and private equity sponsors um, has gotten quite expensive. Um, I right. think that uh, also results in you know a question of how much uh, PE sponsors are prepared to pay um, as a result of you know multiples yep. um, on new transactions. All right, Roberta, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate getting an update there on the credit market, the leveraged loan market, uh, like most other markets being impacted by the rapid raise increase in interest rates from the Federal Reserve over the past 12 to 14 months. Roberta Goss, Senior Managing Director at Predium Partners here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.